Alan Kring Productions, in association with the Emergent Light Studio, presents the Illinois State Collegiate Compendium, Academic Lectures in Business and Economics. This is Business Finance, FIL 240 for Spring Semester 2023. Today, free cash flow. And uh, just a couple of things to start with. Uh, one is I will have a quiz on Wednesday, and then you'll have a little relief from quizzes. The one on Wednesday, I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you um, just a basic net present value and an internal rate of return problem. And then I'm going to also have you do a weighted average cost of capital. However, I will give you the component costs, and I'll give you the market value of each, and then all you have to do is find the weights and the weighted average cost of capital. Just to use that sum product in Excel, and it's just very quick to, do the, uh, to get it done. So that will be uh, a quiz on Wednesday, surprise quiz. And uh, also, I keeping an eye on your uh, Excel, you have until the last day of classes this semester to get it done. I've noticed most of you are, who are doing it are pretty much on your way or you finished it. And don't forget to go back into your account and click on the LinkedIn button and it will automatically put your badge that you have Excel certification right there in LinkedIn. So be sure you remember to do that. But anyway, to the uh, topic today, it's yes. Have you determined if it's going to be five points or 10 points for It will be added a total of 10 points to your total points for the course. Yeah, 10 points for the total points for the course. Uh, which is not nothing to sneeze at, but you know, it's just, and besides which, this is a benefit to you for your looking for internships and for career. And you'll see again today, Excel is just what we use in our work anymore. But a quick look at the markets. It's just been a, a, a quiet day. And the markets uh, had a little bit of a downstroke through the later morning and early afternoon, and they've all climbed back up. They're groveling. There's not much to write about. Dow is up a tenth of a percent. The S&P is up 0.06%. And the NASDAQ finally broke into positives at 1% up. So, I mean, it's nothing, nothing spectacular. The markets are in a really quiet wait-and-see mood. Look over here at S&P 500 volume, for example. Oh. Oh. Well, that's interesting. The volume is only, my goodness, less than a, th a third of what it typically is. The markets are just waiting for some place, something to tell them which direction to go right now. You notice that crude has dropped down. It's trying to fight to stay above 80, but it really wants to come back down into that 79 to 72 band. And that is, supply is strong. And also, as I had mentioned before, demand is surprisingly weak for uh, hydrocarbon products, especially for gasoline. And that's one of the reasons the price can't find its way back up too much on crude. Going over here, the gold bugs are fighting to try to keep that uh, gold above $2,000 an ounce. That neckline, that magic neckline, they're still above it, but it's trying to go back down. Now, the euro uh, has, the dollar is appreciated. The euro has depreciated against the dollar. Right now, you can buy a euro for a buck nine and change uh, with dollars, and it's kind of leveled off there, but it doesn't have that strength. The euro is 
there were these uh, forecasters who said a 110, 112 for the euro on the dollar. And it just doesn't want to stay there. It wants to keep sliding back down a little bit. And you can see that the pound sterling is also doing that too. The pound has depreciated against the dollar somewhat. So the good news, the dollar is still not out of the uh, not out of the game, and all this talk about the dollar being replaced by other currencies, don't buy it. Especially that there's I've gotten more email messages asking if BRICS, this B-R-I-C thing, is going to replace it. No, it's not. It's uh, the currencies in that are all extraordinarily weak currencies, uh, the uh, Indian rupee, the uh, Iranian currency, and uh, China's yuan, and the ruble. None of those has a chance of replacing the dollar uh, individually or even as a collection. So uh, ignore that. Now, bonds. Interestingly enough, there was a spike. The yields went up. That means prices went down. That would mean that there was selling of bonds. And so that money that came out of the bonds, funds from selling bonds, didn't really go into the stocks. So there's more evidence of this wait and see. Everyone, the big uh, dogs are all hanging um, tight right now, putting it into cash to get some sense of where the market is going. We have signals of an inflation uh, of a recession coming. Inflation is beginning to back off and all that, but we still have a pretty darn strong economy uh, overall. So who knows where it's going to go? And that's just it. You're seeing this directionlessness in the markets right now, trying to figure out what's going to happen next. Now, as you can see, over in Tokyo, it just dropped down and just kind of bobbled along, barely making uh, a positive number for the day. And then London started up, but then it slid off and ended pretty much almost flat. So there's kind of a sense all over the world, well, where do we go from here? What's going to happen next? And in an environment like that, it's kind of worth it to follow the dogs. And if they're going to sit on the sidelines, stay there at least for a while to see what's going to come. Of course, I should take my own advice that way, and I don't. But anyway, enough of that. Today is free cash flow, and I've brought this up several times, which is the way I, I teach. I keep introducing a subject so that you are more used to the terminology when we finally hit it. Now, this starts out with some pretty simple stuff that, well, not simple. I shouldn't say that because behind free cash flow is a store is a lot of decision making that comes about in uh, a business. We are looking at incremental free cash flows. We're looking at the extra from a new project, at the extra revenues and the extra costs. That are going to come out. Now there are two kinds of projects. There are expansion projects where you're doing something new and then there are also replacement projects where you are replacing one thing, one operating component with another operating component and the extra revenues and costs. But with replacement projects, it's all about costs. Is the replacement going to save money? So in other words, we have this gasoline vehicle. It runs $15,000 a year. So if we replace it, it will, we will have $10,000 a year. So in that, it's not extra revenues. It's cost savings. So in this case, it would be positive $5,000 of free cash flow is how we would consider the replacement project. Expansion projects are another matter entirely. They are just revenues against uh, incremental revenues against incremental costs. Now, on the revenue side, 
The revenue side has to be just what this new project is putting in to the company uh, in terms of additional, extra, marginal, incremental, whatever you want to call it. How much extra? Now, as far as revenues go, we have a couple of things that can happen with revenues. One of the major issues that can come up is cannibalism. We try to sandbox a new project, but what if that new product, let's say, eats into revenues of an existing product? We don't like that, and so we try to avoid it. But sometimes it might not be quite so avoidable. Revenues can be hurt uh, for other products. They could also be enhanced. And so we have to consider those kinds of possibilities. Let's take an example on the cannibalism side. You certainly don't want to have a product that is going to take away sales from an existing product. Unfortunately, sometimes it's not quite that simple. Let's take the example of a Starbucks. We've got a Starbucks right here on this corner. It's got lots of business, lines of traffic. Well. What if we put a, now let's talk about a, where should we put another Starbucks in town? Well, we could put a Starbucks two blocks away, but that might not be a good idea because that would take customers from the existing Starbucks and fl flow them over to uh, this other Starbucks. So we're not gonna gain much from that, except maybe we would maybe we would still put up that other Starbucks, even if it does cannibalize revenues. And there are two reasons. One of them is obvious. You might be able to get some of the customers who see a line at the Starbucks and they decide, no, I don't want overpriced, over-roasted coffee today because I'd have to wait too long for it. But there's another reason why I might put a Starbucks, okay? Yes, it's going to take revenue away from the Starbucks that we have here. What would be the other reason I might still put that Starbucks there, even if it's going to take revenue from my Starbucks over here? Yeah? I am going to make damn sure that no one else can put a store there. Gloria Jean sees that opportunity. They're going to pop a store right there. Those damn son of a bitches, they're greedy. They're going to take our business. Well, duh, that's exactly why you might want to put another store very close to the one you have. That was part of CVS's trick. Did you know there were CVS's popping up on every corner of the, of the cities for a while there? They were trying to block off Walgreens. Walgreens was doing the same thing. They want to create spatial control. And that can be a more important thing. See, if I put that Starbucks there and it takes from this Starbucks, at least I still have that revenue from those two. But if I abandon that field, that turf, then I can guarantee you someone's going to come in there and take it. That's how competition works. That's capitalism. If I see an opportunity to take away from another company, I will do it. So I might put it up just for the spatial control. Uh, an example of this would be for uh, if you go into stores like, uh, especially Walmart, Meyer, you notice that there are some products that are all over the shelves and they're not selling as much. Dove is an example of that. They, they're uh, and Oil of Olay is doing it too. They are dominating the space. They're not selling all of it because people don't buy that much, but at the same time, they're going to make sure that they're, they're strangling the competitor's products. The products uh, like uh, Tone and Soft Soap and all those. They'll make sure those products don't have very much visibility. That's the whole name of the game. Gillette did this a few years back. But you see, this is the whole thing, is that you are looking for long-term control of your environment. And one thing that I do want to show you here, uh, before I go too far into this, 
is that marketing plays a huge role in business. Because you might have the best damn product that has ever been made. In fact, the Lord himself has endorsed your product. And so has Kanye. Uh, well, that might not be a good idea, but the, the, the bottom line is that you are looking for long-term dominance of a market. And that means that you can't sit on your fat ass. Sometimes you're going to make mistakes, and sometimes you're not going to make mistakes. But that's just how it works. And as long as you're leaning forward and not making huge mistakes, well, there you go. Let me show you an example here. I'm going to pull up. Here's a company. You might have heard about it in the news recently. Let me type in the trading symbol BUD. Anyone know anything about Anheuser-Busch? Anything going on with them recently? Yeah. Uh, their new cans didn't get a lot of love from their... Well, it was a new can. It was one, and it just pissed off people who hate rainbows. And I mean, you had all these, well, this is the end of that kind of boy. They've lost their, they lost their asses. This is the end. <laughs> look. Let's look year to date. Yes, it dropped, but look what's happening. You see, it has to do with long-term intrinsic value of the company. One mistake, whatever, and you recover from it. It's not the end of the world. Think long-term. Really? Budweiser's going to go away? Budweiser? You buy Bud because Bud comes with big horses and big women, for God's sake. Forgive me for that, but for that's but it's not going to disappear from the stage because some butt hurt happened. That's how you think long term. What is our long term goal for our products, our marketing campaigns, and all of that? Now let me give you another example, and this one I can't show you because it was a long time ago. IBM International Business Machines. They had been around. Since even before I was born, that's bad. And they had been in the business of mainframes. These and back when I say mainframes, back in the day, we're talking about a computer that was a building, and uh, all that kind of stuff. They literally used cranes to lower hard drives in, and all this kind of stuff. But IBM was a mainframe company, and then the '70s came, and the end of the '70s, and something weird began to happen personal computers. They started out with just these, I mean, the first one I had was just, oh God, but then they started getting these PCs, as they called them. And these were a new thing. And businesses were adopting them uh, reluctantly, but upper Upper upscale, upper class, and upper middle class families were beginning to buy PCs. IBM stepped right into the pocket with an IBM PC. It was there, it had the IBM logo, and it dominated the market. It got the market, it controlled it because everyone else was sitting on their fat asses just staring. Oh my God. Well, the old conservatives at IBM, IBM was famous for everyone wearing exactly the same kind of suit to work every day, and that's not even a joke. Um, they said, well, this is a bad business. It's, it's not going to go anywhere. Our business, our core values are mainframes. And so they stepped back from the PC lines, and the competitors just swarmed. Dell. Compaq, uh, all these other companies, Osborne was in there, and others, and eventually the Macs started, Apple started showing, not Macs, Apple started showing up, and IBM lost its ass. Literally, really, IBM never recovered from abandoning the turf, you see. And that was a, one of the things that they, the mainframe jockeys were saying. Well, if you give these companies these PCs, they will buy our, buy our mainframe. Boo -hoo -hoo. And so, guess what? They found out that PCs could replace mainframes for a lot of work, pro work. And they also abandoned the whole universe of individuals and families buying PCs. 
There's an example that, uh, a couple of examples. One, thinking short term instead of long term, and also abandoning a field because of a little bit of cannibalism that was going on. Surprise, surprise. And so that's something to keep in mind when you're talking about expansion projects. And also, don't forget that there can be synergies in a project where one product feeds other products or fuels purchases or sales. I've talked about the example of printers and the inks that go with them. Hell, HP even sells its own paper. You own an HP printer, so it would be better if you bought HP paper. No, it's the same damn paper as all the other places. But they did it. Uh, just creating products that fuel sales of another product. And that's something that is uh, that's big business all the time. As a matter of fact, in the uh, pharmaceutical industry, one of the interesting uh, things is that sometimes, more often than you might know, a prescription drug will cause side effects. Well, we can abandon having the prescription drug or we can sell a pill that will fix the side effects. An example of that is Crestor and Lipitor. Some people say it gives them joint aches. So, well, we've got something that'll fix those joint aches. A new product just to take in, in uh, coordination with your Crestor. Well, by God, look at that synergies happening. New products that fuel uh, sales of old products. Another thing about revenues, and this was from my consulting days, by God, as soon as this hits the market, it's gonna sell like hotcakes. Bullshit. For the most part, products go three yards in a cloud of dust down the field for the first few years. They have to get brand recognition. They have to be able to, people see the product. They have to actually identify that this is a new product and that's gonna take time. And that's one of the things that's very different about your generation is the power of social media and also how badly it's still being used by companies these days. Because you need to get that in people's faces. In advertisements, the problem is you put it on those social media sites like Facebook, Twitter, and all that, people are just gonna scroll right by it. You need to grab them. Just anything you can, back from the old days, flash, bang, uh, sex appeal, violence, whatever the hell it takes, Get a, put, a, put a stupid, cute dog and cat on it, anything to stop them from scrolling. And that we're still not doing very well. There's also the social media aspects of the influencers. A lot of influencers really aren't influencers, but some are. And also social trends. You need to keep on top of those social trends to be able to identify where people are looking on hashtags, what's going to catch their attention for the time being, and not be afraid of a little butt hurt for an ad, for God's sake. You're trying to find a hook to get those people to stop scrolling, just like in the old days with the magazines, get people to stop flipping the pages and look at an ad. What is that going to take? I don't care. Whatever it takes that isn't too distasteful, you're going to do it. And even if it's something that's offensive sometimes, for God's sake, that's what you do. But you're not going to get revenues right off the bat. It's going to crawl upward. you first got to get uh, product awareness. And then you've got to get product interest. And then from there, maybe some sales. And that's where the new world of marketing comes in. And some, a lot of old tricks, too, are still out there. Now, the cost side. A couple of traps. Be careful of costs. The first one is sunk costs. S-U-N-K, sunk costs. I've said this before. If it's already been spent, it doesn't mean anything. It is irrelevant. You did a uh, marketing study and some uh, prototypes to see what a product looked like, and you, that cost you $800,000. And so now you're going to go ahead and project your free cash flow, see if you've got a positive MPV. You know where that $800,000 is? It's with Jesus. That's where it is. It's in heaven, living the dream. It's being used to build a new condo complex. Uh, 
you got to understand that if it's already been spent, it's irrelevant. It might hurt like hell that you spent the money, but it's gone. It's, it's over with. And that's something that's a guiding light for someone like you, madam. You see that something on the shelves you think you might like? Buy it. Then it's gone and you can't consider it for future decisions. Buy now. And regret, yeah, it's like the old um, Mary in haste, repent at leisure. There you go. Uh, something like that. But you understand that the sunk costs, they drive in consulting. You would not believe the number of companies. Well, we already spent all this money, so we've got to go ahead with it. No, you don't. You can cut your losses. Just walk away. It was going to be that bad. And that's one of the problems you sometimes even have on the battlefield. We've lost all these soldiers. We can't abandon this, uh, this hill. Yes, you can. You get out of there before you lose more money, uh, more men. Okay, so that's one thing. Sunk costs. Don't worry about what you've already spent. You're never, it's like the old saying by Herodotus, you never step in the same river twice. The next time you step in into it, it's a new river. That water that was there the first time, it's gone. Cost, sunk cost. Now, another one, opportunity cost. Opportunity cost is the cost of the best foregone alternative. Opportunity cost is the cost of the best foregone alternative. The best foregone alternative. If you have, and this is, a, this is something that appalls me, even in larger companies and in other uh, institutions. Well, we've got this land here and it's just sitting here, so it's really not a cost if we use it. Yes, it is, because you could have sold that land. Just a couple of years ago, uh, uh, when I was with some people from a manufacturing company in uh, Peoria, near Peoria, they had uh, uh, several backhoes and other heavy uh, earth movers, and they were thinking of building a new warehouse. And so they said, well, at least we don't have to spend any money on, those, uh, on the equipment to lay the foundation. Like hell you don't. You could have sold those heavy pieces of equipment. The fact that you used them in that project instead means that that is a cost of your project. The same with personnel. Well, we're shifting these people over to this project, and that'll save us some uh, cost of salary. You gave them up over there, they're a cost of your new project. Period. Don't let anyone bullshit you with that when you get into the decision-making environment. Look for what they think they already have that's a cost of what they're going to do. So uh, that, that, those opportunity costs. In a case like this, you are paying tuition here. And I'm getting very little of that, by the way. No, but the point I'm trying to get to here is that the tuition is actually a fairly minimal part of, this, of the cost of college. Because you, sir, could be out there Instead of being here listening to some old geezer like me fart at you about finance, you could go out there and make $20 an hour. Taco Bell. I mean, yeah, it's Taco Bell, but still it's money. You gave that up. So that is a cost of you sitting here. So you think about that. Two and a half hours every week, say about two and a half hours of homework every week, five hours $100 every week, that's not tuition, that's just opportunity cost of being here. We see this dramatically in real life in so many situations. Uh, like, for example, uh, universities, especially community colleges and trade schools, love recessions because people can't make as much money in a recession, so the total cost of going back to college or learning a trade is lower in recessions. So. That's just that classic opportunity cost goes down. The same is true if you've ever seen a concert. What kind of people go to concerts? Losers, young people, people who don't have a lot of money, bikers, people like me. We stand there for, in line for five hours waiting to hear a band. That's opportunity cost. You don't see rich people standing in lines like that. You just don't. Uh, that's why we have admissions charges for some clubs. I went to a club once where there was an admission, a per head fee of, uh, I think it was $100, it wasn't much, 
But boy, that kept the riffraff out because the lines were very short because only people who had a lot of money could, could afford that. Okay, so you're paying to get to the front of the line. Same is true in some of the uh, tickets at Disney. Okay, opportunity costs are a killer because you don't see them. And that's the problem is that we get, well, we got these costs, we called up all these suppliers and all these builders and construction and all that, we got all our costs right here, the accountants have verified all this. That is probably the least of your worries for God's sake. It's the ones that the accountants don't do because that's not what they do. And that's why we have to search. We talk to the operations people, we talk to the marketing people, we talk to the finance people to get those opportunity costs, the indirect costs that are the hidden costs of these projects. I bitched enough about that. Yeah, we sandbox, but also at the same time, keep in mind. And then there's also the cons the externalities. Now, I talked externalities like synergistics with uh, uh, positive externalities, synergies among products and all that kind of stuff, and uh, the negatives, cannibalism, but there are all and costs. But there are also other costs that are even deeper and very difficult, but you have to think about them. And a lot of this has to do with, well, not a lot, but many of these issues have to do with regulatory oversight. Okay, we've got a product, it's creating some pollution problems. Okay, you've got to take into account how you're going to mitigate those. And even worse are the ones that you're going to create that will become problems later. So, for example, I guarantee you within five years there will be insane regulations on electric vehicles, on those batteries, disposal of the batteries, the mitigation efforts in accidents when those batteries are uh, breached and they spill out all over the place. That is coming. You have to think forward. What are these hidden costs that are going to be happening down the line? And another thing, too, about regulation. Well, we've met all of the federal requirements and the state requirements for safety and environmental. Well, what happens when you are taken to court? Well, see, we've met every one of these regulations, so you can't hold us civilly liable. Oh, yes, they can. Watch them. They will nail your ass. You do not have an affirmative defense by saying, we checkmarked all the boxes. Way too many companies cry after they've spent hundreds of millions of dollars in litigation standing behind the federal code and stand, uh, the re regulations of the state and feds. And the jury still said, you could have known more. You could have done better. Think forward. Be the asshole in the decision-making framework. What about this down the line? And don't laugh at me. You know as well as I do, sooner or later, this is going to bite us in the ass. You do that up front. And then the net present value that you get is an honest assessment of whether or not this project is a go or a no-go. And you can still get blindsided. Just do your freaking best at it. There are classic examples where they did everything. They did their focus group. They did this, that, and the other thing. And they still got burned. And especially they didn't think beyond just pure numbers at the possibilities, especially on the downside. Oh, bitch, bitch, bitch. Now, the... Issue of free cash flow. And I've said this before, and I'll say it one more time to reinforce it. This is not accounting. This is not net profit. It's the actual cash that is flowing from operations. Now, I'm going to do unlevered free cash flow here, so we're not taking into account the uh, expenses like interest expense. We're looking at operations themselves. What is this thing going to cost us? And what is this thing going to bring us? And that is where 
the accountants have finished their job with the numbers, and then we in finance take over, and we listen. And that's, if you're in finance, I don't care what you're in, make your voice known on the revenue and on the cost side. And be, um, but, uh, so let's talk about costs. Now there is a startup phase in a project. You're not pulling in revenue, you're spending money. And it can be some pretty awful money. Most people think of that startup phase, well, we buy this equipment, we build that building, we hire these people. But there are other things that are involved. And this has to do a lot with net operating working capital, those current assets and current liabilities, how they're playing off against each other. You see, at the beginning, in year zero, we're doing a product. You're going to have to build the inventory. Let's say $50,000 worth of inventory. In year zero, that's a net cash outflow. But then, interestingly enough, in year one, you'll sell that inventory, $50,000 worth, and you'll bring in new inventory, $50,000. Now, that's a simplified example. So then, with year one, two, three, four, and all those, that will not have any net effect on free cash flow. You will make money off the inventory that is going out and you'll spend money on that inventory, refilling it at the warehouse. <coughs> but then in the wind down year, that closing year, you will sell that $50,000 worth of inventory that was here from, there from the year before, but you won't replace it. So at the end of the project, you'll have a positive free cash flow that will clear the inventory and you'll move on with your lives. So th this net operating working capital is kind of an odd ball. Now, what we talk about is free cash flow is the change from year to year in the, free ca in the net operating working capital. How much does it change from one year to another? And that's another one too, interestingly enough. In your year zero, your payables are going to go up. So that is a source of cash because you didn't pay for them yet. You'll pay for them in the next period. So, but then at the end, you have to clear out all your payables so there'll be a cash outflow from the uh, current liability side. Now this can get so confusing that even I can't find my own butt using both hands in a Rand McNally Road Atlas. So Excel makes it easy. For God's sake, don't think about what you're doing. Just do what I show you. It's very simple and you can lull your way through the net change in uh, the, oper uh, the change in the net operating working capital. Don't think too much about it because it'll drive you crazy. Uh, now, interestingly enough, on Wednesday, the, the part of the class before the quiz, I'm going to show you an actual real example. Uh, it, it's in a PowerPoint, and I'll put the PowerPoint up for you to see too. Um, but the, the, this whole thing, there were a couple of companies that allowed us to see their project decision making and how it went. And these were mercifully short projects, four years I think they, they were. But this is real what we do in this. And it can be kind of uh, uh, illustrative of that it's not hard to do, but it just looks complicated on paper. Not so complicated in Excel once you get there with it. But uh, the first thing that we want to do here is just put down the basic formula for this, which isn't anything evil at all. The free cash flow is your EBIT, your earnings before interest and taxes. This is often called operating income. Sometimes if you're in some companies, they shorten it, they say Op Inc. or something like that. Now, you are going to multiply that times one minus the tax rate. 
That'll give us our after tax. Notice that interest is not part of this calculation because interest is not operating. You think about it this way. You serve, uh, well, we have to pay, we're going to write the check for our interest on this bond, this 8% coupon bond. Boy, is that going to slow down our operations. No, it's not. It has nothing to do with operations. What is in our world, in this kind of finance, everything has to do with the operations of the company. Everything else will answer itself as a free cash flow line. Once we get down there, we'll see how much money, real money, funds we have. Not retained earnings, not profit, the actual money we have. And then we can say, okay, out of this we have to write our interest checks. Out of this we have to write our dividend checks. And if we uh, need more money, well, do we have enough here that we can pay inter extra interest on a new bond issue or something like that? You see, at that line, we then answer the questions that are the longer term. And I've said this before, I'll say it again. <coughs> For a number of years, companies were so focused on that, on the net income and on jingoistic, well, we have a strategic plan here and all and they were not answering the question, can we write the checks for the payroll this week? They didn't ask those questions. And now it's finally turning around a lot of places and universities that had not been teaching that short-term financial management or short-term cash management, suddenly the courses are coming back. Here, I've got, uh, just in the last couple of years, I've started back up a course and lo and behold, Treasury uh, finance departments are hiring those people because they have been taught the old, old rule, cash is king. Okay, now, one thing here, we're going to add back depreciation expense. It's in here in EBIT. It's not real, but it does have a real tax effect. I mean, if I can take away some depreciation expense money here at EBIT, that's less tax I have to pay. Even if it didn't really happen, it has a real effect. So that we need to keep, keep it here, but then recognize that it didn't happen at all. Now, a little side note on this, a couple of little side notes and uh, on, on this one subject. Some companies, they die, they, or they're near death. And you would think, well, there's not a whole lot of value in this kind of an enterprise, but a big, healthy company, profitable, would buy them up just because their tax loss, losses can go to this profitable company. And so the, this dead company can actually be worth a lot more than a dead company. If, I, if you died and somehow I could reanimate you and make you my slave, zombie slave, you know, well, you have more value than just a corpse in the ground. If I can put some, yes, evil master, what do I do? You work at Taco Bell, $20 an hour. Yes, evil master. See, I brought you back to life. You're more valuable than everyone. Oh, he's dead. He's worthless. You know, worm food. You're not, if I can bring you back to life. You're going to have to clean up. I mean, the decayed flesh we'll have to do something about. Maybelline is pretty good at that stuff. Uh, I should know. They've got a line of men's products I use every day now. Uh, okay, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> Another thing about this, too. It's kind of an interesting thing because the book steps into this, and I think, oh, you're going to go there. The way you depreciate. Now, the accelerated depreciation things, those are so that you get more punch of depreciation tax shield early in the life of the project so the present value of it is higher and then later it's lower so that's a great thing. There's a problem with this though is that at the end of a project 
when you sell off all the stuff, you will pay tax on the difference between the uh, salvage value, what you sell it at, and the book value. Like suppose at the end of a project, you sell the, uh, the book value is 2,000, you sell it for 10,000, you'll pay tax on $8,000, difference between salvage and book. Now, if you think about it enough, if I accelerate my depreciation to the front end of the project, that will make the book value at the end of the project lower, which means that I will be exposed to more tax on salvage minus book. It, it's a, it, you have to do the calculation to see whether it's better to accelerate your depreciation or not, based upon the present value of your tax savings with it front-loaded versus the tax uh, effect of selling above salvage at the end. And, and I, I actually did this with something uh, purchase that I made. I was looking at whether it was better to accelerate the depreciation or to straight line it. And because the what I bought had a life of only five years, I realized, oh, geez, I can sell this in five years for a good price, but if I've depreciated the whole damn thing away, I'm going to be taxed out the butt on it. So I straight-lined it simply because I, had, I was able to kill off more of the value uh, by the end when I sold it, when I got rid of it. But anyway, now the next one here... Now, this is a little bit more complicated, uh, just on a technical level, because your financial statements will give this as a negative number, but mathematically, you subtract your capital expenditures. But keep in mind that if you're using uh, financial statements that are in Excel, it'll already be a negative number. I'll show you this in a minute. I'll, I'll do a real example of this. But, so you have to remember to put ABS around the number that you call from the statement of cash flows. And then this pain in the ass, minus the change in net operating working capital. On balance, did your current assets over your, by your current liabilities increase or decrease? Because if your net operating working capital on balance went up, that hurts your free cash flow. But, yeah, I can't even do it. But in Excel, you don't have to think about it. It's, it's something that is just do this, don't ask, and for God's sake, don't ask me. I'm too close to Alzheimer's now. Okay, now, what does this mean in practice? Watch, I'm going to do this, and this is Excel. I hate that stupid thing that pops up now. I'm going to do this in Excel. I'm going to show you how it works, and I'll find a company. Uh, Well, we're going to go over here to sec.gov. To this day, whenever I go to the SEC, I ask myself, can they tell that it's me going there, given the history of my complicated relationship with the SEC? Filings, company filing search. Now, what I'm going to do for today is, uh, are any of you familiar with a company called Electronic Arts? Few of you are. I can if I can tell the gamers in here because you'll be nodding your heads yes to electronic arts. But it's a company that has always had. You know, it's healthy. It's not. Uh, it's not a horrible company at all. So let's look at EA. Electronic arts. Now I'm taking you back through this so that you're comfortable with this. Remember that when we go to these documents like this, these are not Wikipedia, Investopedia, or whatever. These are original source documents. And if the truth is not disclosed here, and honest facts with the right numbers, there can be criminal and civil 
fines, uh, assessments against the officers and directors of the companies. So you have a reasonable reliance that this is good data. And that's the bad thing now. It was hilarious. Um, several, uh, I'm part of a couple of groups that are looking, testing these AI chat bots like ChatGPT. And one of the funniest things that we've found is that they just make up data. They'll, it, 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 you have them write a research paper, they'll make up the data. And it's, it's, in some cases, it's so obvious, it's laughable, that they'll just lie because that's, they see that as a human trait, the fastest path to get to, an ans uh, to a result. And so that makes, that's one of the ways that they are so vulnerable. And then I, there's a GPT right now that can actually identify papers written by chat GPT, and it's awesome. I love that thing. Basically, it's a snitch. But let me show you this. Here's an 8K. Remember, the 8Ks are the ones that, um, uh, that non-recurring events, they say something new that's happened. Now, a little warning I want to show you here in this 8K is it will have a lot of uh, legal speak and corporate speak. Don't try to plow through it. You'll get used to it as time goes on. But when I see this, on March 27th, 2023, the Board of Directors of Electronic Art Inc., the company, approved a restructuring plan, the plan, focused on prioritizing investments to the company's growth opportunities and optimizing its real estate portfolio. The plan includes actions by portfolio rationalization, including intellectual property impairment charges and headcount reductions, impacting approximately 6% of company work, company's workforce, in addition to office space reductions. You know what I see in there? I see 6%. The rest of it is bullshit. Oh, they're cutting the workforce by 6%. Okay, enough. Move on. Trust me when I tell you this, that there is a lot of crap around the core of delicious caramel. Uh, which is kind of a gross thing to say. <laughs> Ew. Okay, watch this. Now, we're going to find the 10K. Now, this 10K is, is old. They're about to issue, but it's the one I, I want to use because it's got annual data in it. Now, remember how I show you to do this. You click that button, Filings. Now, don't lose your cool looking at all this lettering. Look for the blue button interactive data right there at, in the, uh, on the left side, that blue button. And if I crank it over here, is there a problem with the internet actually working? Uh, okay, there we go. Now, you could look at the financial statements. They list them right here. You can look at each one individually, stuff like that. But let's just pull up the Excel document. Every one of hundreds of thousands of companies that report to the SEC must provide a standardized set of Excel, uh, uh, worksheets in Excel format. And there it is. Well, spank me. Look at this. All of it's right there. Now, a word about doing a job. No matter whether you're in an industrial environment or anything you do, landscaping, uh, factory work, whatever you do, you're going to move the tools around so that they are the most efficient for you. And of course, you might have managers bitch at you, well, that tools that shouldn't be there. You put things where you want them. In this case, with free cash flow, I want the balance sheet and the statement of operations. And I also want the statement of cash flows. Well, there it is right there. So I'm going to just grab that, hold the mouse down, and drag its ass over here and put it by the statement of operations. That way I have my three documents right where I want them. Make your environment productive for you, no matter where you are, in an office, in a factory, uh, whatever, in a construction site. 
You don't want to be running back and forth to grab things. And I got everything I want right here. Now, in between, right between the balance sheet and the statement of operations, I'm going to insert a worksheet. And I'm going to call it my free cash flow. And that'll be the one that I use for my uh, calculations. Now, one thing, you may know this already. I'm going to hold down the control key or the command key in Mac, and I'm going to highlight those three, and then I'm going to, whoops, I didn't mean to do that one, but oh well. And I'm going to expand the size of them so that they all have this nice, big look to them, and then I'm going to put it in a font that I kind of like, something like, uh, I don't know, I'm kind of a Georgia Pro fan. Whoops, I meant to highlight, you highlight the whole thing and then you put Georgia Pro. Yeah, Georgia Pro. And I'm gonna make it a little bigger, let's 14. That's a little too big, actually. Maybe reduce it a little bit in size. Okay, so all that I did there was, whoops, I have to do something here, get out of that. Okay, good. Well, really? Okay, now. Free cash flow. Now what I'll do here is do 2022 and 2021. Now I'm also going to want to put over here somewhere out of the way a little bit tax rate. Now I just go down the line and I, okay, I've got my free cash flow formula there needs the EBIT. It's going to need the depreciation expense. It's going to need the capital expenditures. You know something, just a minor sidelight. Do you notice that I capitalize only the first word? That's old school. That's the professional way to do your uh, row labels. And you'll see a lot of places still stick to this kind of this odd little sidelight here. Now, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to write net operating working capital. And then below that, the change in net operating working capital. And you don't have to do this. I'm just a bitch about this kind of thing. Make it look pretty with the little delta symbol. Why did it do that? That just drives me. Ooh. It, it irritates me when it does that. Georgia Pro. Why is it making that such a ginormous thing? I'll fix your goose, Georgia Pro. I don't know. If, if I worry too much about this. I should be focusing on the... Okay. Now double click so that we have some space here. And also, finally, right here, let me, um, free cash flow. You do the setup, and then you just go and grab your numbers. Now, EBIT equals, and I go over here to my income statement. Right there it is, operating income. Depreciation expense. I go over here to my statement of cash flows. 
There it is. I think I made this a little too big. Now, capital expenditures. Here's the one. Let me show you what's going to happen. I'm just going to run over here for a second and show you. You go down to your investing activities. You do net cash. See how it's already in negative? You don't want, you want to subtract it. So if you subtract a negative, you get a positive. So what I'm going to do to fix this is I'm going to say equals absolute value of that. And then I'll go over here and grab that. Net cash, close the parenthesis. There we go. Now, net operating working capital. That will be equal to current assets minus current liabilities. So I'm going to go over here to the balance sheet. I'm going to find my total current assets minus my current liabilities. Oh, there it is. Went to sleep there for a second. Now, before I go on, what I'm going to do is I'm going to grab these. I'm going to copy them. Now, the change in net operating working capital is just the current period, net operating working capital, minus the previous period, net operating working capital. You see that? Now, I'm going to show you a stupid pet trick I'll bet you've never seen. See, I am going to highlight these two cells. I'm going to go right-click, Format Cells. And over here in Alignment, on the horizontal, I'm going to center it across those two cells so that I show that it belongs to those two years together. It's kind of a stupid trick, but I'll bet you've never seen it before. It's better than Merge and Center because the two cells are still there. If you use that merge and center thing across a row of cell, some cells, that makes all those one cell. This way, there's still two cells. And I can see that the NOWC is in B6. Okay, here we go. Time for the end. Equals free cash flow. We get EBIT times one minus, oh, I forgot to put my tax rate. <sighs> Hire the old guy, he's fun to watch. <laughs> okay, free tax flow, do it again. Equals EBIT times one minus your tax rate, and then plus your depreciation expense minus your capital expenditures minus your change in net operating working capital. Excel allows us to minimize the amount of thinking we're doing in this. And you turn it into just a mechanical. And notice how everything is by reference in this. I don't actually put numbers into the formula at all. And then I can say, well, let's see if Electronic Arts had positive or negative free cash flow for 2022. Well, spank me, Jesus, look at that. Isn't that pretty? Let me format these. Format the cells. And I'm going to do number, currency, no decimal places. Ooh. Free cash flow, look at that. $2.185 billion. That's what we call a healthy company. You see, positive, good, negative, bad. But you see, from here, I can then say, okay, do we have enough to pay our, our uh, coupon on our bond? Do we have enough for a dividend? What kind of a dividend? If we borrow some more money, can we pay the coupon on it? What are we looking at here? You see how this all comes together here? And it is cash. You understand that if this is negative, that, is, that has to come from somewhere because everything above it was operating. So if there's a negative at that line, 
That money has to be found because you have to pay those bills. This is all bills that were came due during that during 2022. I won't mention any names, but there was a company <coughs> that <laughs> had negative free cash flow for years. So the question was, where was that money coming from all those freaking years? And that's something that's worth, you know, asking about. To whom did he of the cloven hoof sell his soul to keep that operation going when there was a negative balance in the damn checking account? And you ask the same of any company. I, could, I guarantee you that if you looked at Budweiser, its free cash flow, you would see a number that would embarrass the treasurer of Yahweh. It is that good. Oh, they're going to go out of business. No, they're not. They could buy your ass. You see, you look at free cash flow. That's actual money. So when you're going out to eat tonight and you say, well, can I eat? You look in your pocket and you see butterflies and moths come out. That means you can't eat. Okay? And those guys waiting down the street, they're there to take money you owe them. And if you don't have the cash in your pocket, well, what they're going to do is they're going to liquidate your ass right there on Market Street. Okay? Remember, cash is king. That's all I have for you today. I thank you.